If you would like to earn CPE credit for listening to the show, visit earmarkcpe.com backslash FPA. Download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. If you would like to earn continuing education credit for your FP&A certification from the Association of Finance Professionals for listening to the show, go to the show notes for details on how to earn the credit. Finally, if you enjoy listening to FP&A today, please go to your podcast platform of choice, click the subscribe button, and leave a rating and review of the show. And now, on to the show. From Data Rails, this is FPNA Today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FPNA Today. I am your host, Paul Barnhurst, aka the FPNA Guy, and you are listening to FPNA Today. FPNA Today is brought to you by Data Rails, financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. Every week, we welcome a leader from the world of financial planning and analysis and discuss some of the biggest stories and challenges in the world of FP&A. We'll provide you about actionable advice about financial planning and analysis. This is going to be your go-to resource for everything FP&A. I'm thrilled to welcome today's guest on the show, Scott Stauffer. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks, Paul. Pleasure to be here. Looking forward to it. Excited to have you. So a little bit about Scott. Scott comes to us from the Washington, D.C. area. He graduated from Lehigh University with a degree in electrical engineering and earned an MBA from NYU. He has also worked as a CEO at multiple different companies, including uh, Visual Networks, where he led the IPO process. And today he's currently the CEO at Scale Matters, a go-to-market optimization platform. So we're thrilled to have uh, Scott here with us and get a perspective from a CEO, a little different than our normal uh, guest on the show. So maybe Scott, could you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure, Paul. As you said, name is Scott Stauffer. I've been in the tech space for virtually my whole career. Um, graduated from college with an electrical engineering degree and started in the semiconductor world and moved into um, network and systems management, which is where I started my first venture back in 1993, uh, quite a while ago. But, you know, over the last 30 years, I've basically been founder and CEO or just CEO of um, five different early and growth stage uh, tech companies. Um, and um, it's been a joy and uh, look forward to continue doing it. You can't escape your engineering roots. So uh, while most of my energy in these uh, businesses that I've run has been focused around the sales and marketing and customer and revenue side of the house, we go at everything with quite a bit of a quantitative mentality. So uh, pleased to be on your show where uh, the audience is, uh, will be near and dear to my heart in terms of the way they think. No, I appreciate that. And I've always said I've worked with, you know, a number of people in FPNA that come from an engineering background. And I've almost always found they're some of the best people to work in FPNA because they have that very strong quantitative background. They know their numbers, they know the data. And I've always found they make some of the best FPNA professionals. So, you know, if you ever want to come over to FPNA, let me know. Maybe next time around. <laughs> oh, fun. So, you know, I know you run a current venture, it's called Scale Matters. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that venture, you know, what you do, how that came about, just a little bit of the story there? 
Sure. So the background is at, at our previous company, and the previous company was, was about a I don't know fifteen million dollar business. We made a, a CRM and a marketing automation platform that were purpose built for nonprofits. Okay. And we sold predominantly to smaller nonprofits. So I'm not talking about Red Cross and some of these sure. organizations that feel like major enterprises. I'm talking about the millions of uh, smaller nonprofits. And one of the things that we recognized, I mean, there was kind of a feel-good aspect to trying to help these nonprofit organizations because for the most part, they're trying to make the world a better place. But with that said, they are not a particularly great customer to build a good business model around. And the reason is they tend to be um, low pay, high touch, and they churn a lot because they lose their donors and stuff like that. And so it, it forced our company to get very, very vigilant about how do we get efficient at acquiring these customers. I'm sure some of your um, audience um, operates in the uh, SaaS business, but not all of them do. But a key metric of success to SaaS companies is what we call LTV to CAC, lifetime value divided by cost of acquisition. And um, because the LTV numbers were always struggling, it forced us to say, we really got to focus on CAC, right? How do we acquire these customers a, a heck of a lot cheaper than we currently are? And so we basically put on our engineering hats. We deconstructed our entire process of sales and marketing, tore down our tech stack. And when I talk about a go-to-market tech stack, I'm talking about the CRM and marketing automation platform, all those kind of tools. And we basically modeled the process. We, we proceeded to model at a very granular level the entire process or journey from the point somebody would hit our website to the point they would become a customer. And then we rebuilt our tech stack in a way that we could measure it at the same level of precision that the models were built. And that started surfacing a lot of really powerful data. And at the time, and mind you, I'm the CEO of this company, the first thing I did every single morning for five years was log into Salesforce, export a bunch of reports into Excel, <laughs> and start manipulating the data into you know charts that actually the management team could use to make decisions. And you know, long story, bringing it to an end, what we managed to do in just over a year was reduce our cost of acquisition by almost 75%. It was just a um, complete change of opportunity for the company as a result of that. Of course. So, so when we uh, sold that company to a private equity firm in, in 2018, there were a few of us uh, from that company that we said, look, you know, what we've done here, we can basically productize that approach and then mm -hmm. make that available to other companies. So that's really what the genesis of Scale Matters was. So effectively what we do is we have a platform, uh, think of that as uh, a bunch of software that we've built, including a bunch of models that we use, and we have some services, but basically we come into these early and growth stage B2B companies and we help them get to a much higher level of precision on how they can manage their go-to-market efforts, ultimately using data to surface 
where there's friction, surface where there's inefficiencies, help them take it out and basically get to a much more efficient place. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. Uh, something so many companies need. That's a huge thing to be able to, like you said, 75% reduction in CAC. Not to say every company is going to get that. Some might only right. get a 5%. Some might get a hundred. But you know, every little bit of efficiency you can get there extends runway, gets you to profitability quicker, maybe allows you to hire more salespeople so you can grow faster, right? It all makes a big difference. So I can see where that's a something that's extremely valuable for companies. It's helping companies for sure. Good. No, that's great. So I know, you know, you've spent nearly, I think, 30 years now, roughly, as a CEO at five different companies. And as you mentioned, I believe all of those are companies where, you know, they were scaling, growing, probably went through those hyper growth phases, you know, a lot of growth. Having done this a few times, how do you think about growing and scaling a company? What's that kind of roadmap look like? I think there's a few stages. One way that I think about it is not dissimilar to how venture capital type investors think about it which is there are different phases of risk. And the first one is product market risk, right? Have you even got an offering that solves a problem for enough people out there or uniquely solves a problem for enough people out there that you could actually, if you can get them all, have a nice business, right? And then after you've sort of solved for product market risk, you start to say, okay, well, now we have to focus on go-to-market. Can we come up with a repeatable, predictable way to actually acquire customers, right? And you're thinking about very different things in those two phases when you're focused on product market risk, right? What are we spending all of our time doing? We're spending as much time as we can talking to the types of people who we think are the customers we want to sell to so that we get continuous feedback into our development organization and keep tweaking the the offering and, and that sort of thing. But you're not spending money on salespeople or marketing programs or anything like that, right, at that time. I mean, you may spend money in order to get access to enough people to actually talk to. Sure. But you're not necessarily trying to sell them at that point. Yeah. Once you kind of reach product market fit, then it's about, okay, who is the ideal customer profile? Do we have clarity around that? Because a, a lot of early stage companies, and I understand why, because we all in our early stages just feel desperate to get any business, right? <laughs> and uh, But so many of us, therefore, take on business from customers that aren't necessarily really well suited for what it is we do. Right. So, so I encourage companies to put a lot of energy into gaining clarity around their ideal customer profile. And then within that, you know, who are the right personas? Who are the beneficiaries of this stuff? Right. Who are the people that can say yes in a sale process? Who are the people that can say no? Uh, and starting to understand and, and develop some theories around um, how do we reach these people? Right. How do we access these people? Um, what is the messaging once we do, et cetera. So you're really focused on trying to create the recipe of how you sell, right? You're not, you're not trying to scale yet. You're just trying to see whether you can come up with some repeatable recipe of how you can actually get customers in the door. And, you know, once you've proven that, then you go, okay, 
now it's time to think about scaling, right? Scale, scaling is simply a uh, sophisticated word for growing faster, right? You, you know, and this is where you start to need a lot of money because it, this is where you have to start to invest in marketing programs, start building out sales teams, et cetera. And, you know, what you often learn is that what was repeatable in a non-scaling fashion doesn't work when you're actually trying to scale, right? So you end up having to change the recipe and stuff like that. But, you know, we usually would then move once we, we got into scaling mode, you're really just focused on growth. But then you get to a certain point that you say, okay, this unabandoned growth maybe can't last forever. Or, you know, our investors have been in this for five or six years. They're going to want to start getting an exit. So you do have to start thinking about profitability, right? Or efficiency, think of it, right? Because uh, a lot of times when companies are in that scaling mode, they're not that concerned. Uh, I mean, there's a benefit of efficiency there, which is sure you can actually scale faster if you're more efficient. Yeah. But, but it's not really top of mind. There reaches this point at some, you know, and it's usually driven by whatever the uh, total available market is when you start to get some saturation. Then you have to start really thinking about profitability, at least in the world I live in, right? I mean, sure. there's a wacky thing about tech is that you can happily go on for a very long time without ever thinking about profitability. That that uh, luxury doesn't exist in most industries, right? Yes, I kind of think of those as the four thresholds, right? Product market fit, uh, repeatable go-to-market motion, scaling it, and then driving for efficiency and profitability. And, and you know, it's 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 different things you focus on. It's often um, different skill sets you need in the company. It's very common to see leadership teams or substantial portions of leadership teams change over as you get through each of these thresholds. No, you described that very well. And I was sitting there, even as you were listing some of that, thinking about myself as I, you know, my own business and going recently, like, is this an ideal customer? Sure, it's revenue, but is this really what I want to do? And I've learned to say no to a few things and I'm still trying to figure out, okay, how do I make sure this is really what's going to help me figure out how I scale? So I could very much relate to what you're saying. And also, I think a lot of people probably relate to, you know, very similar to this different stages of venture capital, right? Your pre seed. You're trying to test, okay, is this product, can you get it to MVP? Is it really valuable? And kind of that seed, you're starting to test, okay, is there the market out there in series A or a little bit of that execution and you get to that series B and C and it's really about scaling it. And then you get closer to D and E, you know, outside of tech sometimes, it's about how can we get it profitable so we could take it public? Okay, we've now started to grow it. And so there's a lot of similarity between what you described there and the different stages of, you know, the typical venture capital journey. All right. So, you know, when it comes to a CFO, what do you look for from a CFO? How do you decide, you know, what you want and what makes an effective CFO? Sure. I guess for starters, I'll just offer an opinion about what that title means. Sure. And the reason I bring this up is because it, at least in the tech world, particularly in sort of sub 25, 50 million dollar companies, there are a lot of people that have that title and to me, they're controllers. They're glorified controllers, right? And sure. to me, there's a very big difference between finance and accounting. Both are critically important, but accounting is not finance. 
And when I think about a CFO, I think of that person as kind of a number two colleague or partner to the CEO. I think of that person as very operationally focused, who views their responsibility supporting the other functions within the organization, but supporting them in a way that's helping to drive accountability of the results that yield the financial outcomes the company needs. I think of the CFO, of course, as owning the responsibility for making sure the company is financed properly. And I think of the CFO in many cases as owning the relationships with the uh, investment community. Certainly, I expect that there's an accounting function done very timely and very well that reports into the CFO. I also expect that there's an FP&A capability and other nominal things. Sometimes IT might be there. One of the things, not sure if you know the term revenue operations, but I'm beginning to be a very big fan of RevOps reporting into CFOs because uh, the CFO has this sort of unbiased position around data. Whereas if you have a CMO, chief marketing officer and a head of sales, they don't necessarily see eye to eye. So it's nice to have this uh, independent arbiter. But I, I think of the CFO as probably the second most strategic C-level position in a company because there are a couple reasons, right? The CFO and the CEO, by necessity, are the ones that have the most exposure and interaction with the board and with investors, right? Yep. So they're in a continuous dialogue around strategic stuff. The rest of the C-level is not, right? I mean, there are in dialogues around important stuff, like how are we going to get our numbers? How are we going to get our supply chain fixed, et cetera, right? But there's a whole nother level of conversation, which I'll just call board level conversation that goes on all the time. And the CFO is a party to that. And so, you know, we expect the CFO to be, you know, a strategic leader and looking at the bigger picture. Thank you for the answer. There, there was a lot there. And I appreciate, you know, the idea of a secondhand person, you say kind of, you know, the right-hand person that really helps with the strategy. And I think it makes sense where you mentioned, right? They're the ones that talk to the investors the most. They're externally, you, the CEO and the CFO manage most of those external relationships, which forces you to have a lot of those strategic discussions because that's what the external is mostly focused on. There's, you know, financing sometimes, but really the, is the strategy right? Are we going to be able to accomplish our targets? Am I going to be able to get my value out of this investment of mine? Right. That's their number one concern. They're not worried about the weeds and the details. Right. Until you start missing all kinds of numbers, then they might start asking you everything. But as long as things are going well, they don't get into that level of detail. That makes a lot of sense. One other thing I would mention, and again, I'll qualify it from the vantage point that I operate, which is in tech, which is mostly growth focused, right? Yep. And, and a good CFO in tech has a growth mindset, not a expense mindset. Yep. And it's very important, right? I'm not disparaging CFOs who are very kind of expense, you know, let's not spend anything, you know, because it plays a role. It just doesn't play a role very much in tech. Sure. And instead, the CFO needs to be bringing something to the table in terms of thoughts, uh, innovative concepts, et cetera, that are going to help accelerate growth, not just kind of be the person that puts the handcuffs on everyone else that's trying to spend money, so to speak. 
So they need to be a CFO instead of a CF no? Yeah. As I've heard it said, right? Exactly. That makes a lot of sense to me. So, you know, next, and I know we talked a little bit about this before, you know, when you're looking at FP&A departments and you mentioned at Scale Matters, you've seen a big difference between companies that look at FP&A as strategic versus kind of look at them as back office. Can you maybe just talk a little bit about that as well as just kind of your own experience of how you look at FP&A? Sure. Well, again, with an engineering background, I tend to be very data oriented, right? So sure. I want a bunch of analysts in my company. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care what we do. I want people looking at data that have the skill set to actually separate the signal from the noise, recognize patterns, curate it, and identify actionable stuff from it, right? My view is FP&A organizations that offer the highest value to companies are not the ones who are simply focused on helping to prepare for the board meetings or make sure the financial reports and that kind of stuff are all done properly and on time or doing forecasting and stuff like that. But the ones that are actually complementing the other functional areas of the company. And again, since I spent so much time focused around go-to-market sales and marketing stuff, I'll talk about in that arena. The best sellers or the best leaders of sales teams are not typically terribly analytical people. (laughs) In much the same way that the best analysts are not typically great salespeople, right? Mm -hmm. And so the FP&A organization can complement the skill set of these leaders in the go-to-market team by filling in this gap they don't have, which is an ability to leverage data to help them make really good decisions. Right. And when we don't see that, what we end up seeing in sales and marketing organizations is a lot of gut feel, winging it, a lot of sort of haphazard experimentation. I often talk about last sales call syndrome, right? Or the loudest seller syndrome. Loudest seller gets off his last sales call, just lost the deal, comes pounds on the table. Oh, we've got to do all these things differently or we'll never sell anything, right? That's a data point of one. The problem is it it typically has outsized influence in most of these companies, right? And as a result, many companies end up reacting to data points of one because they don't have anybody that's supporting the decision-making team with slow down, let's look at a broader picture. Let's see what is statistically significant here, what's impactful, what's real, what's not, right? And that's where these FP&A teams can be just tremendously valuable, really help change the trajectory of a company is by basically adding analytical brain power into the other operating functions of the company. I really appreciate what you said there, particularly, you know, the analytical brain power. You know, sometimes you see as someone described it, the F and the P are fat and the A is skinny in some organizations. And you want that A to be just as big as the others because it's where you drive the insights. You know, the financial planning to a certain extent is kind of blocking and tackling, right? You got to put a plan together. Yes, there's strategic stuff in it, but it's really that analysis. And when you get off course and when you know, helping to find insights that can really allow you to achieve that plan, that there's so much value that can come from FP&A. You know, I still remember I had a business leader who said to me one time, he goes, what I like about you, and it was you know, one of the best compliments I had is he goes, 
you don't just report the numbers, you help us achieve the numbers. And I think the word he used is shape the numbers. Like you have an impact on the P&L. And I think that's what you're saying you want to see from your FB&A department is those best departments by the analysis they're bringing in the insights are driving value for the organization. Yeah, for sure. And by the way, I think the P part of it is critically important in order to have the A, right? Because if you think about a plan, Yep. A plan, in my mind, is a blueprint, right? Or it's a hypothesis. Let's talk science, right? Sure. We're yep. going to start this experiment. Here's our hypothesis that we're going to do this and it's going to result in this, right? Well, then you have to set up the test, right? Uh, which is, okay, how do we measure it? Yada, 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 right? What are the pass fail criteria? But then somebody has to look at the results, right? And you can have all this great data. Uh, think of it like having a high resolution MRI. And if there's no radiologist, it's an amorphous black and white picture on acetate, right? Yep. So, you know, I do think the plan is a critical piece of context against which performance actually can be analyzed. And I do think also that, you know, far too many companies, I mean, companies pretty reliably do pretty good financial plans, right? What's our gap revenue going to look like? Our expenses, right? Who are all our employees going to be? What are their salaries going to be? How much fringe, right? I I mean, that's what FP&A people do out the wazoo. Yeah. But let's talk about new bookings, right? We need to acquire thousand new customers and drive, uh, you know, $3 million of new ARR. Where's the detailed blueprint behind that, right? Most companies just fail miserably at taking their goals. They almost think their goals are their plans. They fail miserably at taking their goals and deconstructing those into these measurable blueprints to actually execute. Uh, and of course, if you do that, then you actually can start to measure and analyze the performance against those blueprints, right? So I, I do think the planning is critically important too, but just it needs to go beyond simply the traditional financial planning that's done. Yeah. And, and I completely agree with you. And what I meant is just kind of, you know, the many of the pieces they have to do, like the fringe, all just the the general stuff that goes into building it up. But I 100% agree that blueprint and being able to take that financial plan and make sure it hangs together with the operational plan Mm -hmm. and that it's all consistent and integrated and that you have a plan to achieve it versus, I mean, how many times has somebody said, at least I've heard a lot of times in the meeting, I don't even recognize that number. Finance put that together. Yeah. (laughs) It's sad, isn't it? I've heard that so many times. Well, guess what? Then that's likely your number. Yeah. You know, and so then there's something wrong if that's the case, right? Because that process isn't hanging together. And it's so important that everybody's on the same page and there's, you know, different reasons that happens. But I think that gets into, that's where the planning is really critical is getting everybody on that same page. And like you said, making sure you have the blueprint versus, well, we got to get 3 million in growth and 30%. And then we'll we'll just hire more. It's not a plan. That's kind of a wish. Yeah. You know, like give me some detail behind that. That's exactly right. That makes a lot of sense. You know what it is like. 13 different spreadsheets emailed out to 23 different budget holders, multiple iterations, version control, errors, back and forth updates. You never really feel in control of the consolidation and collection process. Yep, I've been there. Stop, breathe. DataRails is the financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. 
DataRails takes data from all your company's disparate sources. No organization is too complex, consolidating everything into one place, secured in the cloud. Now all your data finally talking to each other. Everything is automated back into your report in Excel. Cash flow, FX conversion, intercompany transactions, now automated and up to date. Drill down and variance analysis in seconds. Don't replace Excel, embrace Excel. Turn your Excel into a lean, mean FPNA machine. Find out more at www.datarails.com. So I wanna go back to something you said earlier, because this is a conversation I've had with a number of different FPNA people and different is RevOps. You know, there's often, sometimes RevOps sits in finance, sometimes it sits in sales, marketing, sometimes it's out on its own. You know, you had mentioned that you think RevOps belongs in finance. And I think you talked about, a little bit about aligning incentives and, you know, kind of finance being that neutral group, you know, not that biased. Can you maybe talk a little bit of what led you to that conclusion and just kind of how you think, you know, in those operations there and things, what belongs in finance and FP&A versus in the business when it comes to that? Sure. So if you think about the revenue function, in many companies, there's kind of three subcomponents, marketing, sales, and let's call it customer success, right? All the post-sales support stuff. Yep. There are natural tensions that exist between those organizations you know, that just the nature of the roles. And even though they might be all kind of emotionally bound and aligned to the overarching goal, in getting there, there are natural tensions. Uh, no different than there's um, within R&D, there's tension between the development group and the quality group, right? Sure. So there's just these natural tensions. One of the results of this, those tensions is that you get misalignment and siloed data. So <laughs> you, you end up in these meetings where you're talking about, you know, are we generating all these leads and all this other stuff? And for the exact same metric, the head of marketing will say it's X, the head of sales will say it's Y. And so what ends up happening then is these meetings devolve into a state of bickering Finally, if there's an adult in the room, they say, time out, meeting's over, go reconcile the data. And these companies spend so much time reconciling the data rather than acting on the data simply because the tensions that cause this misalignment cause people to want to expose data that's supportive of their positions, right? Yep. So the solution is you have to get unbiased, right? The owner of the data should not have a horse in the race, so to speak. Yep. So to me, there's a couple choices. If you have a legitimate CRO, so remember I, I said I have some suspicion around some people that get called CFOs. Well, I have a lot of suspicion around a lot of people that get called CROs, uh, chief revenue officers, because in 70 or percent or more of the companies that I see, that person owns sales. Yep. It's a glorified title for VP of sales, right? Yep. In a company where they have a legitimate CRO that owns revenue, owns marketing, sales, and customer success, then by all means, RevOps should report to that person. There is absolutely nothing wrong with that. But if you don't have that situation, then you have to find some other unbiased C-level participant to put RevOps under. And what I like about going under finance is 
finance, by definition, the CFO is more likely to have an analytical mindset than a CRO. Yep. And so you will tend to get RevOps teams that are under CROs tend to be more technology focused, like they're great administrators of Salesforce or great administrators of HubSpot, right? They're very good at the technical aspect of making the technology. Uh, They might also be very good at enablement, training and onboarding new salespeople, et cetera. But you don't generally see those functions be particularly good at business analysis. And the RevOps teams that show up under finance tend to be better in my view, at business analysis, which is really much like I was saying about FP&A, it's really the place where RevOps can become a strategic asset to the organization. Otherwise, it's a must-have to manage the tech. So that's why I like to see it under finance. And we're seeing more and more organizations put it under finance, which I, I think is encouraging. And I've always felt like it more naturally fits under finance. And your explanation there made a lot of sense to me. It's one of the best I've heard because I've asked this question of, you know, different people a few different times and, you know, you get some different answers. And I think there's that natural bend, like you said, toward the analytics versus the tech stack with, you know, the CFO. The other thing I think we're seeing a lot of and get your opinion on is, you know, people putting data under the CFO. So the uh, data analytics Seems like a lot of modern CFOs want to own that data. What's your take there? Do you think that's the natural fit for it or it kind of depends on the org or how do you think about that? For pretty much the same reason, at least the last part of that last answer, which is, well, first of all, where else is it going to be? I guess if there's a IT, that's the other place, right? But again, when I see that, we have the opportunity to engage with a number of data operations teams and stuff like that, right? And they're so focused on the technology, right? Well, we're building a warehouse on um, Snowflake, right? And then we're going to use Power BI or Tableau, right? It's all about what the tools are they're going to use and all the work they go through to do normalization of the data and clean up of the data, which is all important because there's no point analyzing it if the data is, is not prepped properly. But then they just fall short on okay, now what? Now you've done all this work with the tech to have data. Who's using it to basically help advance the company, right? And so again, I think if it's under a CFO, because of what I imagine is the CFO's natural proclivities, you're more likely to see a better investment and a little bit more priority around the analyst part. Yeah, that would be my answer as well. That makes sense to me. That's what I've seen. You know, my last company... We got a new CFO, and one of the first things they did is bring in data under him, under the CFO. And there was a real focus on, hey, how do we get the technology cleaned up so we can do good analysis? Not, I don't care if it's Snowflake or this or that or what tool we're using. It's how do I get the insights I need to move the business forward? Yep. Right. And so I think that, you know, that's really important there. So, you know, switching gears a little bit, talking of go to market. How do you see, how can FP&A better support the go-to-market function? What do you want from, you know, the FP&A team to ensure that, you know, go-to-market is being as efficient as they can be? First thing I would like is to see FP&A drive the planning process for go-to-market, just because I, I think they, they will have a better natural understanding of what it means to actually build a plan. And so, you know, we talked about a plan or a model sure. as the blueprint, right? Yep. And I think that's the first place that FP&A could be very beneficial to the go-to-market teams is just help them build better blueprints. And the reason I say that, when you do that well, the process 
itself of building the plan often surfaces some tremendously valuable insights, unfortunately, which mostly say your plan is just ridiculously unrealistic, right? But it just, it forces people out of this hope as a strategy mindset, right? And so that's why I think the planning process is so valuable because it just forces reality into Yeah. Now you might say our win rates have, you know, hovered around 20% every single month last year, and we're showing them at 40% this year, but we actually have a reason we believe, sure. right? And if that's, then that's okay. But if you look at the step function trend chart and you can't actually explain why is that step function going to happen, you know, then that forces you to say, okay, well, it's probably not. Let's build something more realistic, which then typically will force you to actually have to say, okay, well, we probably can't spend the money we were hoping to spend either, right? It just makes people more responsible stewards of their organization if they do really good planning, in, in my mind. So, and I think FP&A can play an invaluable role there. And then the second part, of course, is uh, what we've talked about is, is is just analyzing the data since particularly in kind of sub $50 million companies, most go-to-market teams don't have a business analyst assigned to them, right? Right. I mean, you get big companies. I mean, they've got people, sure. basically FP&A people who have been uh, transplanted into the go-to-market teams, right? Exactly. They're embedded in the business. Yeah, they're embedded in the business. But until that point, I I think they need to play that role uh, on a proxy basis. That makes complete sense to me. But it led me to one question as I was listening and thinking about it. How do you look, you know, when it comes to like sales commissions and building plans, what role do you look for finance, kind of FP&A to play in that? How do you think about that, you know, kind of tension of, you know, salespeople and developing the plans, they know how to incentivize, they understand a lot of quota, the, the market, but there's also that financial aspect and making sure you kind of have that neutral observer. So how do you kind of, you know, do you look at that as you're structuring it and think about the role finance slash FP&A should play there? Again, I have to qualify by my world because we're not talking about big enterprise companies, right? Of course. I would say there's still a ways to go for finance to do a better job at that. And why I say that is what I'll typically see is finance people have the, again, largely because of the exposure to the boards who basically are typically investors who have 30 companies they can look at. So they've got benchmarks. They understand what good ratios look like, right? So if it's a SaaS business, you know, we want to see minimum four to six times OTE in terms of bookings, right? Ideally seven or more, right? So they sort of understand what appropriate benchmarks to strive for are. Unfortunately, I see a lot of um, finance organizations sort of just dictating, okay, that's what it has to be. And yet, you know, to me, you can actually build a very clear understanding of what a rep is capable of. And, and I'll tell you why. We, we have a thing, we call it a rep capacity model. But basically, by understanding conversion rates throughout the pipeline, you end up knowing that, okay, for every deal I'm going to get, I need to get 16 opportunities that enter into stage one, eight into two, and, and so on, right? It's, it's just a reverse engineered conversion rate. Sure. You can sit with your sales team, sales leaders, and say, let's do some activity accounting. How much time does it take for a salesperson to prepare for, 
and then execute on the activities that happen in stage one. Two hours, right? So you end up capturing the amount of time required at each stage. And then you know how many times you have to cycle through each stage to get a deal. You basically can create a very good model that says it consumes 72.4 hours of a salesperson's time to get a deal. Then you say, okay, well, we know if everyone worked five days a week, 52 weeks a year, there's 2,080 hours, but they're going to take five weeks off between holidays, vacations. Then there's human tax of inefficiency. You have a starting point of what the actual capacity of hours they have in a year is. Yep. Then you have your 72.4. It'll tell you they can do 32 deals, right? And I just don't see enough companies putting that energy into it. I think I might've mentioned to you, I would say well over 60% of the time, if not more, most of the organizations we see actually have too many salespeople, uh, substantially too many salespeople, you know, particularly relative to the top of funnel support that they're getting. And it's because they don't do this type of modeling. They've gotten used to sort of this level of mediocre performance where people are producing um, 3x their OTE and revenue, and they like are afraid. For some reason, they think, well, if we cut sales team back, our revenue is actually going to go down, and it won't. And, and I'll tell you why it won't. Because if you cut it back, your best salespeople are actually going to stay because they can actually make some good money then. When you've got too many salespeople, nobody can make good money. You know, I'd like to see the finance organization go a step deeper on modeling really what sales capacity is based on the actual activities. That I, I really appreciate all you said there. And most of my career, I'd never got involved in that. And I got one company where we really did that. And I learned so much getting in depth and, you know, I had a really good boss that one of the businesses he managed, I took it over for him when he became my boss. And he was, uh, you know, finance. He'd gone through and said, look, it doesn't make sense. We've added all these salespeople and we just have a bunch of mediocre salespeople. Let's scale back the sales team. And they were still getting the same sales numbers with 30 less salespeople. All right. Well, now we just saved, you know, $5 million or whatever the number is. That's, that's all bottom line. And we, you know, pretty much have the same top line, maybe a slight difference, but almost virtually the same top line. That is the single easiest way to increase uh, CAC efficiency, right? Uh, customer acquisition efficiency, in my mind, is shrink your sales team. No, and it makes sense. I, I mean, of course, you want to shrink it by getting rid of the bottom performers if you can, right? Of course. You want to keep efficiency and make sure the marketing engine's there so they can close. But yeah, generally, you can do more with less in sales than a lot of companies. I agree with you that what I've seen. Makes a lot of sense there. I've really enjoyed this. Now we're kind of heading into the part of the interview, kind of wrapping up where we have some standard questions we ask everybody. Okay, I'm getting nervous, but go ahead. So first of all, I'll ask you here is what's something unique about you that you can share with our audience? Something we wouldn't find online. Oh, Jesus. I'm a pretty ordinary serial entrepreneur that just works too hard and everything else in his life suffers. So you're just, you, you got the bug and that's what you love to do. I do love doing it. And, uh, but it's not without its sacrifices. Yeah. I could imagine. No, I know it can be a long hours to do that. I'm glad you love it. So next question we like after everybody is our sponsor is data rails okay. and data rails is an FPNA platform that's built around Excel, right? So it's very much designed to keep the user in Excel. So what's your favorite thing about Excel? Could be a formula, a function, a feature, something you really like. You're kind of your go-to maybe in Excel. You know, I spend a lot of time in Excel 
and I could probably spend less time if I knew more of its capabilities. But, you know, we do a lot of modeling, right? I, I, I am our CFO. I'm our CEO. I'm our CFO. I'm our head of product and our head of sales, right? So I'm doing all of our financial models. I do all of our, um, you know, go-to-market models, et cetera. I don't know. You know, I get pretty good efficiencies out of uh, lookups, whether it's V, X, H, doesn't matter. You know, I get used to using those and it helps to speed things along uh, quite a bit, but I, I would not view myself as um, top 10% Excel skill set. You know, and honestly, I wouldn't expect it as a CEO. If you're top 10%, you're probably spending more time in the spreadsheet than you should be. Yeah, probably so. So I think that totally makes sense, right? You need to know it enough to do your job, but it's not where you're going to get your greatest value. All right. So we have two questions here and then we'll, uh, you know, we'll be done. And first one is you know, for someone out there that wants to reach that C-level, maybe be a CEO or even a CFO, they're starting out their career today. What would be the one piece of advice you'd offer them? Be confident, but be humble. And what do I mean by that? Our world thirsts for leaders. The vast majority of people seem to be quite content letting someone else take the lead on things. And my view is the people who are best positioned to fill that void are the people that have a lot of self-confidence. You know, ideally, it's not all ill-formed. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Even if it is, somebody needs to step up and take the lead. And I think for young people, particularly this generation where, you know, everything's sort of about community and equality and stuff, that, that may not be that comfortable. But, you know, people like me, you know, this is my last gig here. I'm not doing another one of these. So I want to be able to look at the younger people in our company and say, you know, who's stepping up? And I think the people that have the confidence will step up. So be confident or fake it at least, right? Because as you start to then take some responsibility and you have some success, your confidence will build. But the reason I said be humble is because there's so much to learn. And too often, if you don't have the humility to at least tell yourself, even if you don't tell anyone else, at least tell yourself that you don't know that much, right? Then you won't be open to learning all that you can. That'd be my advice, right? Be confident so you step above everyone else that's waiting for somebody to take the lead. But make sure you're always learning because, I mean, just there's so much to learn as it is. And then again, if you think about what changes all the time, you know, it just never stops. Um, the requirement to stay current is just, you know, it's daunting. I, I like that answer. I think that's the first time I've heard that one, but it makes so much sense of, you know, be confident, but also be humble, right? Nobody likes a confident, arrogant person that just thinks they know everything. They're usually, they're hard to work with. But if you're confident and humble, mm -hmm. people trust you. Mm -hmm. And you'll find that they gravitate toward you. And that makes a lot of sense. If you want to advance and lead people, having those qualities make you a leader, help make you a leader. I mean, there's other things, obviously, but I really like that answer. Sure. So last question, if someone wants to get a hold of you, maybe learn more about Scale Matters or has a question, what's the best way to contact you? Contact me, email, scott at scalematters.com. I still use email. I actually see every email before I delete it. I don't necessarily open it, but I'll, I'll at least look at that first line of, you know, so you, you got some real estate to catch my interest, but no, absolutely. Uh, e email me at scott at scalematters.com. You can also reach out to info at scalematters.com or just, you know, go to our website if you just want to learn more about us. 
Thank you for that. And on that note, we'll go ahead and let you go. But thank you. I've really enjoyed interviewing you. I know our audience will enjoy this uh, podcast. A lot of great advice there and thoughts about how finance can step up and better you know, support the business and what FP&A should be doing. So thanks again for your time. I really appreciate it. Paul, it was my pleasure. Uh, I appreciate being on. All right. Bye now. Thanks, Scott.